0: Speak the charm of May Charm of May Charm of May Charm of May
1: Charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world.
0: This is the Arnamancy podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult esotericism and the paranormal Scott Gosnell returns to the podcast as our guest in this episode Uh, we're going to be talking about his latest and possibly his last uh, translation of of one of Giordano Bruno's works so stay tuned for that but first I have three announcements just bear with me, they will be fast first, and this is the most pressing on October thirty first at six PM Pacific time, I'll be doing a live stream podcast with Alex Boland of the Alex Cast. We want you guys to join us. There's a link in the show notes with more details and a uh, and a link to where you can watch the live stream. We're gonna do uh, Q and As from listeners. We're probably gonna wear some stupid costumes. There's probably gonna just be goofiness going on, but it'll be some good Halloween fun. Second, currently in the Arnomancy shop, I have Jay Swafford's incredible Picatrix Deccan's Talisman cards. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for you to go check those out. And finally, uh, over on the Arnomancy Patreon, we are almost reaching, We've. I'm sorry, I have almost reached the next goal. We Everything kind of slowed down during the pandemic, but it started to uh, pick back up again. And I just want to reach out to you, my listeners, and ask you to please consider helping me reach my next goal on Patreon. You can do this by supporting the podcast for as little as $1 a month. And now, on to the interview with Scott Gosnell. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have uh, one of my favorite, frequent, recurring guests, Scott Gosnell. He's a an entrepreneur, a scholar, uh, a translator of the collected works of Giordano Bruno, and many other things. Um, thanks for being back again, Scott. It's good to see you.
2: Hi, Eric. It's good to see you.
0: So you, this is you've basically just finished. Um, a monumental project. The, but you, so you just completed the translation of the song of Circe and the composition of images, signs, and ideas by Giordano Bruno, which is what, like the sixth, fifth, sixth that you've done.
2: It's the seventh,
0: seventh. And, and that's taken up what, like 10 years of your life.
2: <laughs> Something like that. I, I had originally started, uh, back in 2012. It was the first one 2011. And, uh, there basically were very few uh, translations of the Latin works available in English, and I got really interested in his memory works from uh, Yeats's Art of Memory and from reading uh, John Crowley's uh, or Crowley's um, uh, uh, Egypt books,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then um, you know went on from there. And then in the meantime. Uh, walking with moon walking with Einstein came out,
0: oh yeah, I still have not read that. I think we've talked about it or it's been mentioned every time I've uh, talked to you about this, and I still mm-hmm. have not I still have not read that book. um so I have some questions you you've spent more time with Bruno than probably ninety nine point nine percent of people on the planet, like you right. you've been immersed yeah. in his work um and you didn't really. So did you progress through his works chronologically, or did you sort of pick them based on how difficult it looked like
2: they'd be? Uh, no, I did neither of those things, although I did start out with his first published work, which was or uh, Diarama, On the Shadows of Ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was saying, I'd, I'd seen that work mentioned and little bits of it translated in all of these other books and referenced and, and talked about. And I had originally gone through and said, you know, surely there is someone who will translate this thing, and uh, you know, called around to classicists and Renaissance scholars and everything. That's not terribly interesting, you know. I'm very busy. I have tons of other stuff from the classical period to to uh, to translate. So you'll have to get somebody else. And so finally, out of frustration, I ended up doing. Um, But then I just kind of went on from there in almost just by what I wanted to read next. Okay. So the second one that I did was actually one of his Italian works, which was uh, on the infinite, the universe and the worlds, um, where he's talking about cosmology. And that was at about the time that uh, the new series of Cosmos came out.
0: Which and misrepresented so, him,
2: right? Which which kind of misrepresented him, although you know it was an amusing thing and kind of, uh, but you know the other thing is is that he's not so easy to represent because you know they represented him as a martyr for science, mm-hmm. and also as just this daydreaming mystic, so two contradictory things, but you can't really say like. He's a martyr for free thinking, or he's a martyr for freedom of speech and thought, or for philosophy. Like those are not trenchant things. When you have the sort of image of like the church versus science, is much more uh, packageable, I guess. So I don't blame them for making a small but important error in that category. Yeah and that... then there are a lot of historians who think that his methods were essentially just like I don't know hallucinating or something <laughs> or you know going or going into mystical trances and coming back out with something but if you read the the, the books it's not that at all it's you know fairly clearly uh, philosophy done in sort of form, full formal style and he's clearly trying to design his own complete philosophical system
0: yeah and i feel like um the last few that you've done um in particular the, uh, on magic the the last part of on magic which is about binding and then um especially the uh, the shadows of ideas and then this new one that you just finished the composition of ideas images signs and ideas there's he I notice he references on the Shadows of Ideas in this, and he even refers to the Shadows of Ideas as something in his sort of like, I don't know what you want to call it, but it's like cosmology of thought, sort of. Like he talks right. about it. And that's that's really interesting, because it does seem like he kind of, he started off in, uh, in the Shadows of Ideas having this kind of like um, reinterpretation, like his own version of Neoplatonic Platonic ways of looking at things and it was hard to kind of tease it out of there like i've i've read that book uh, uh, a large number of times but probably not as as many times as you have but but uh, you know through reading it you really start to kind of see like oh this is kind of his way of uh he's working through plato right here and he's trying to figure out or maybe not plato he's working through the neoplatonists here and trying to figure out how what they were doing corresponds to his uh, experience of his own way of working with his memory i guess and then right it seems like the composition he he really breaks it down and it gets really granular like he breaks down images or i guess ways of thought into tons of different categories can, can right
2: you- so what's what's interesting about that so the the sort of top level thing that he talks about that's interesting is the platonic ideas which are these archetypal like forms which everything else is derived from and so he says okay somewhere up there there are these ideas these forms and then the real things out in the world that you perceive and that you interact with are the sort of second tier and then behind those there are your conceptions about what those things are. So how you perceive them, what you think about them, your imagination of them, and then that all ties back up into the forms. So he sort of says, okay, there are the ideas themselves, the vestiges of ideas and the shadows of ideas. And so uh, the vestiges are like, you know, vestiges are like footprints or like the, the, the tracks of the ideas, so you can kind of see what, where the ideas have made an imprint. Right, and he in various places says, you know, the the Platonic ideas are like a stamp or like an imprint, where you have a wax seal or a seal in wax, and it leaves behind the shape of the of the metal seal, right, in the wax, or when you write something down or you carve letters into stone, right. Like it leaves the imprint of the chisel and the hammer in the stone. Does he
0: right. does he also kind of so I, I see what he's saying there, and then but then he was also talking about the shadows of ideas are sort of like the impressions that the that the real or that you know, the quote unquote real object that's, you know, in the material world then leaves on your imagination when you perceive it? Yes. So it's almost like uh, there's a down and an up, like things coming out of the platonic ideal down into the real world and then up into your own sort of like uh, fantasy world or your own sort of imaginal world through... uh, (laughs) It's like a a weird game of telephone.
2: (laughs) Right, it is. And it's, um, you know, a lot of his concepts are very good, like, early psychology. Like, Mm -hmm. usually you can only trace modern psychology back. A lot of people only do it to Freud, but obviously he learned his stuff from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And Jung, likewise, right, is drawing on older sources, and what he's drawing on are these proto-psychological ideas that were embedded in Renaissance magic and in religion, right? So Jung talks a lot about the soul and the self and the ego and all these things, but it all draws on and reframes these older concepts at the same time, like what's exciting is that if you think about when Bruno is writing, this is the same period of time when anatomists figured out the double circulation of blood mm-hmm. so they figured out that there's a one side of your heart circulates through the body and the other circulates the blood through the lungs to oxygenate them. Right? And there's a double circulation and this is when they figured that out. What those, what the two halves of the heart are doing. Right. So there's a lot of scientific knowledge that's happening or that's being discovered right now. And if you read Bruno carefully, there are a lot of these places where he's sort of incorporating this new scientific knowledge into the theory of the thing. So in, in, composition of images, he talks about the differences between seeing things straight on, where it will hit the the fovea of your eye, which is very sensitive in high light conditions, and looking at things obliquely or out of the corner of your eye, where you don't have as much detail, but you have a good sense of motion, and things are black and white, right? So it's good in low light conditions, because you have more cones which detect your, mm-hmm. which detect color, packed into these little pits in the middle of your retina, which are the fovea, and you have rods on the outside. And so he's actually noticed this, or someone else has noticed this, and he's copied it down. But there are a lot of these phenomenological issues that show up in Bruno, like for ex- another example was in one of the other things, I think it was in 30 Seals, He mentions this debate that was had between you know is your vision some faculty of the eye that goes out and grabs the image right and brings it back to you or is it a thing that is uh inherent in the you know the light that is coming from the thing and it arrives at your eyes directly and so as da vinci put it like if it was some faculty of your eyes, your eyes aren't big enough to go to send that thing out far enough to be able to see the stars, which are really, really far away.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so, you know, and Bruno says something similar to that, and I've forgotten where where he says that, but it's in in one of his works, and so you see these little like proto-scientific, you know, phenomenological philosophy pieces, or epistemological philosophy pieces. That are embedded in this larger, like, discussion of Platonism and Aristotelianism, and in you know, all of these other classic philosophical questions. So you start to see the emergence of modern philosophy edging into, you know, the scientific realm.
0: Yeah, I noticed that uh, one of the passages that I that I read was about. Um kind of the passive nature of light, about how light sort of pervades everything, but it doesn't have... Uh, you you can't perceive it on its own. It has to be interacting with something in order to be perceived. Yeah. And the other thing I really liked about this passage is he was kind of tying um, his sort of scientific or, you know, yeah, I guess his scientific approach to um, to the nature of light to the sort of like metaphor of light as knowledge, which was a really common kind of like Renaissance theme where light was a a symbol of knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. And I liked that. I liked, I, I, I guess, uh, I find Bruno's mind really difficult to uh, comprehend. Like there's a lot of stuff that was going on in his head. Um, but that sort of thing there was like this this bridging of kind of like the metaphorical, or I guess, imaginal existence that it—I get the impression that he spent a lot of time dwelling in, and his um, perception or understanding of the physical world. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting little bit in uh, in the yeah. composition of images.
2: And in fact, in like the cosmology that he does, like the the key insight that he gets, like he gets some of his some of his theses. From Copernicus, where you know the sun is heliocentric system rather than a geocentric system, but his actual like real insight is, oh, he says no matter you know no matter where you are, you would perceive that as the center. Like he says, I look up at the night sky and I see all the stars moving, and I think I'm sitting still and those stars are moving. He, right? you see them rotating,
0: yeah, right he had the, a on the Earth's
2: axis, and you think. He's like, so obviously you would think if you didn't know that like the earth is the center of everything, the earth is not moving, right? It's sitting still. He says, but we know that the earth is moving. We know that everything else is moving in relation to the earth. And he says, but you know, if you were sitting on one of the other planets, right, you mm-hmm. would think that that was the center and like everything, you would see everything as it moves around you yeah. right, relative to you. So yeah. like the essential piece of his cosmological thesis is actually about psychology and phenomenology.
0: Mhm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's a, it's a very and I think that a lot of his ability to um to grasp that sort of stuff or or come up with it uh probably owed to, is probably owed to his like really vivid imagination. Like he he uh mm-hmm. he was so used to the manipulation of his own imagination. I I him he he must have had entire worlds in there.
2: Yeah, and that you really get that impression just from the scale of the memory palaces that he sets up in these things. Yeah, um, is like everything is in there, and it's in in composition of images, and to to a lesser degree even in uh, Song of Circe, like you, it's almost exhaustive. You know, you're like. Basically, one of the questions that he, or one of the reasons he wrote Song of Circe was that his English students said, you know, this whole on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the on the shadows of ideas, it's, you know, too complicated. There's too much stuff in there. And he says, all right, I'll do a simple one for you and just, you know, to start people out. Mm-hmm. And so then he rolls out in fairly quick order, like. Systems working with the seven classical planets and another system that's all, you know, based on Circe's island and then combines those two with all the animals of the sea, air, and land. And he sort of categorizes things that way and he's like, okay. And then you have 30 of each of these, right? (laughs) And so he says, you know, and each of those can be a place or each of those can be something added to a place. Each of them, right? And you can have associations among them. And these have this character and those have that character. And he says, and then you have another 30, which is the names or locations of each of the seven planets gods. And then you have these images that are associated with them. And then right and you sort of of go, okay, look. I can imagine the students just looking at being like like, this uh." is great. (laughs) But like you start to say, like, even to hold the memory palace, I need a memory palace just to like, just to remember everything that I'm supposed (laughs) to have in this first. And so, you know, yes, it's got structure. Yes. It's got, you know, vivid examples and all that sort of thing. And, you know, one of my favorite parts is where he goes through and does the caricatures of different human types. So, you know, he says, you know, many nobles are hawkish and he says, you know, the, Big no, you know, big noble nose, and they have very fierce, and they try and steal the prey of others and all this stuff, or, you know. Or there is the the bookworm who, you know, or the glowworm or whatever it is, and he says, you know, these these scholars sneak around and try to right, hoard their knowledge and mm-hmm. eat, and eat the way, eat their way out of books, or you know, or there is the noble rooster. It was Gallus, which is the uh, the French bird, right? So he he's writing also to the French king. So he says, you know, the rooster, most noble of creatures, you know, <laughs> up early uh, announces the rising sun, and right, and so on and so forth. As Europe is now rising to a new enlightened age, or whatever it is, and so he sort of butters him up in that one, or the or the lion, which is the the animal of the ruler, who is you know mm-hmm. strong and noble, and, right, and also reflects the sun. So he knows where to suck up, and also has a lot of fun in you know organizing these things into these caricatures, which are obviously strongly emotional images that you can associate with specific people you meet, and so you stick their name to a. You know, to to the animal which they most resemble, either by behavior or appearance or whatever it is. So he has all these methods that he that he puts in there. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of one of the core things. Uh, as much as he spent time on philosophy, if you if you don't have a way of creating images for your to stick in your memory palace, your memory palace is kind of useless. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, I, I there there was a lot of that in. Um, on the shadows of ideas as well where you Mm -hmm. where you talked about the wheels and the combinations and stuff that was pretty interesting okay so then you've spent you know i think we said what like eight years eight years working on this so you started as a person who just got curious about bruno and now you um have translated i don't know two hundred thousand of his words (laughs) how do you uh how is your perception of bruno changed
2: um that's a very good question. I you know, I think everyone who works with Bruno, I've always said has their own version of Bruno. Mm-hmm. And so um one of the things that you notice in the act of translation is that uh the works are much more approachable when they're not in Latin. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the the reputation of them is that they're intensely magical and sort of almost nonsensical and i think some of that comes from just like the experience of a modern reader looking at all of these words in Latin. my version of bruno has always been kind of this cool adjunct professor visiting professor who has gone you know wandering around europe from going from college to college and like he's the guy who his, like, his main job was teaching astronomy and astrology.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So he worked with um, Sacrobosco's sphere as his main uh, educational text. So, like, he gets hired to do that, and then also because people have trouble learning all of their, uh, all of their constellations or, or whatever it may be, and also just because he was really interested in it and was sort of a memory champion himself, he gets into teaching another class in the art of memory or in logic or in whatever it is. And so, like, the students all think this is grand and and like a marvelous study aid, right? But also, you know, it gets him into trouble. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, like that, you know, there's always that one cool faculty member that the administration can't stand.
0: Yeah, yeah, like the computer science professor who's in a band.
2: Yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> and they're like a little bit skeptical of this person and they're definitely not going to make tenure. Right.
0: <laughs> which he never did.
2: No, he never did. I mean, unless you and count
0: uh unless you count 8 years in a dungeon, I guess that's that's a type of tenure. That
2: was a pretty long tenure, yeah. yeah. Um you know, which very unfortunate and like if someone asked a while back, whether like modern faculty members would do everything that Bruno did. And I said, well, no, like, first of all, they would be smart enough not to go back to Italy. (laughs) Into the clutches of the Inquisition. And then secondly, if they had made the mistake of falling into the Inquisition's clutches, they would have made a fulsome apology and waited until the eyes of the Inquisition were off them and gone on to, um, like, made their escape at, at an opportune time, right, and then repudiated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so you'll see, like, n- these days there are certain regimes which have, you know, dissidents or, you know, dissident scholars forced to make, you know, video apologies and confessions and things, and right and the scholars will make them and then they get deported or they leave and they're like oh no that was just complete nonsense
0: right right
2: everything i said you can be disregarded and everybody says oh all right but you know <laughs> that's not necessarily the most valiant thing to do it's, it's not it's not necessarily the mo- it's not necessarily the thing with most integrity but often like discretion being the better part of valor is a You know, maybe a a good rule to follow. Yeah, right. And he might have lived.
0: He might have. Yeah, I mean, he was there for like it was eight years, wasn't it? He was in the that dungeon for eight years before they executed him. It's kind of crazy that. I get the impression. My impression of Bruno, I guess, is um, is that he was really stubborn. I I sort of feel like as much as as much as I admire his works and love reading his stuff. I really have this feeling like if I, you know, went back in time and like had dinner with him or something, we would not get along. I think that he he, he just gives the impression in so many of the stories about him is just coming off as a complete jerk. Um so yeah, he's
2: extreme he's an extremely argumentative person. Mhm. Um very abrasive, although like You know, they seemed to like him uh, in Germany, and they seemed to like him. You know, he had friends everywhere he went. Mm -hmm. He had, like, followers, and, you know, but just like, you know, John Florio in England was friends with him. Um, John Florio wrote one of the first dictionaries in English, popularized the study of Italian among uh, the nobles in England, you Mm -hmm. know, and uh, wrote plays and essays and other things.
0: Uh, Oh, so you know he was good
2: friends with Bruno, like the students, like Alexander Dixon. Did you see? um, I
0: was just about to mention Dixon. um, A new translation or a translation of Dixon's stuff just came out.
2: Yeah, a new a new edition. Yeah, yeah. And so he, uh, yeah. So his stuff is out. It's nice because now you have a a bigger version of the or a broader vision of the art of memory, and so you have a lot of these things coming out. Mm All good.
0: It is. It is. It's, uh, it's a great time to live in, although now we need the art of memory less than ever because everybody's got, like, a smartphone and stuff.
2: <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, the, one of the things I, w- I saw today was, um, like they said, uh, uh, the internet is basically a giant psyop right now. So it's a, a psychological operation against your sanity. God, it really... Right. Tra- constantly trying to way. be manipulated and everything. And so... They said, you know, the cure for it is reading books Yeah, and perfectly old books. Right. So the more time you spend reading old books and doing this stuff rather than, you know, constantly doom scrolling, right? The the books give you, like, the books give you something inside which you can anchor to. And in the same way, like, if you spend a lot of time in your own imagination and your own memory, that's also, like, an inner resource that you can... Use to to give you ballast against the you know the all the bad news or the, mm-hmm. the changing and confusing things of the day.
0: Yeah, and I guess one nice thing about reading old books is uh, the older and more and more established the book is, the more arguments in favor and against it you can find. You know, people have had mm-hmm. a, people have had a long time to think about this stuff, so. You know, the it's not just uh, knee-jerk reactions and um, what the internet calls hot takes, <laughs>
2: which right, <laughs> these are very cold, very old takes.
0: Very cold takes,
2: <laughs> and you can sort of you can sort out from them what's useful, what's not useful, what's still current, what's changed. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So, like, there's a whole big thing particularly that you hear from the right today of like, don't you want to hear from people who are outside your bubble who think differently than you do? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I spend a lot of time with people who think very, very differently from how anyone today thinks.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to spend all of your time in the 15th and 16th centuries, but like, you know, it's helpful to get really far out perspectives, really different perspectives from what you could imagine. And then you sort of say, well, you know, do these apply? Do these not apply? Yeah, um,
0: this makes me think of uh, the first time I encountered Plato, actually. Right. Which was actually fairly late. Like I didn't uh, take any philosophy classes in college or anything like that. So I was probably like, 26 or 27 when I first read Plato or first got somebody to explain it to me and I remember reading it and thinking to myself this is so alien to how I was raised to think like how could anybody have ever taken this seriously and what would it mean if this was the right way to look at stuff right and that was that that broke everything so I would advise other people to not do that <laughs> 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 no uh, but i think it is a good thing to do it is a really good thing to uh kind of uh understand and understand uh world views that are like pre-modern and un- and realize that like you know these were humans who were just as intelligent as we are May- maybe even more intelligent because they didn't have as much um carbon monoxide in their air <laughs> like we do in portland um but uh but how, you know, they, they got their world to work thinking this way and knowing this way and being absolutely certain that this was the way things were. Um, and if they could be, if we could perceive them as being as other and as wrong, uh, how can people be perceiving us that way? Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, are you going to miss Bruno?
2: Uh, yeah, a little bit um you know it, at one at this point like the project is kind of done for me which is good like i've yeah. done all the memory works done all the the works on lullian logic i've done all the magic works and i've done uh that one on the on the cosmology and there are like two other ones that people have said would you would you just be so kind as to do these as well and i'm like i'm I'm done <laughs> i've had a, i've I've done about a third or a half of them and I'm like, really it's someone else's turn. That, know, I need to go on to other projects.
0: that reminds me of a, a quote I read from uh, Daniel Matt, you know who was involved in the Pritzker uh translation of the Zohar and he yeah. did he did like the first nine volumes, which I think covered sort of like all the core works that are like considered the classic Zohar, but there's still all these additional books that have been. Slapped onto it over the years, and people were requesting him, like, Are you gonna translate the blah 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 next? And he (laughs) looked at him, he's like, Haven't I done enough? (laughs) That was, (laughs) yeah. So, so, but so you're gonna be releasing an omnibus edition, right? Or some oh, sure, yeah, giant, attractive, leather bound tome.
2: Well, that's the thing is that, that like, yes, there have been requests for the big, like. As they say, talismanic, leather-bound, you know, thousand-dollar, <laughs> thousand-dollar version, jewel encrusted.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure you could probably team up with uh, with some, uh, you know, fancy bookbinder person to do that.
2: Yeah. Um, so you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens on that front in the future. Um, there will probably be a hardbound edition. Um, once I figure out how that whole thing works, whether to do print on demand through Ingram, Mm -hmm. whether that's a, a, you know, I'm doing all of this backwards, of course, like usually, you start with the really big expensive one, and then you work your way down to the paperback, right? In this case, we're working in the other direction. So I have to kind of figure out the production requirements of everything, and whether there's demand for these more elaborate I think sexy.
0: Yeah. I think you'd be surprised. I think there I think there probably would be a, a pretty good demand for him. You know, Bruno is such a recognized name. Uh you gotta remember there are all of those like crazy occult book collectors out there who love stuff like this and they want the fancy version. And they'll spend like a hundred and fifty bucks on a nice leather bound copy or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a market, you just have to find them. <laughs> Um all right so then uh so what's okay we we we've talked about Bruno a lot you and I over the past 4 years or something like that so i guess my question is like what is next what are you going to do now that you're done with Bruno uh
2: so i go back to be like Bruno actually is one small piece of all of the things that i do uh or have done and so it, it's something that, is, that has grown to be like the thing that I am interviewed for. He's the guy that I'm interviewed for, but like I do all of these other things. So for many years, I was and still am, I guess, a, um, a startup consultant. I, you know, help people with risk management, with strategic change, with all these things, um, you know, personal coaching and, and all of this stuff. And so uh, I'm going back to doing that. I'm writing a book on, how, on startups and how to do them correctly. And I'm doing another book that's dealing with these 10 or so major crises that we've got going in 2020. Um, yeah. Ranging from like, you know, the COVID pandemic and like lessons we can take from that. And hopefully, someone, you know, 50 years from now who is in another pandemic what would they need to know or what you know like how do things fail how do they not fail Um, going back to that idea that we talked about of having people who's you know who who saw things from a very different perspective but whose ideas are transferable into what you're trying to do now Um, so like you know I'm reading a lot of books on on the rise of fascism in you know in the west and like The frightening thing is that there are all of these quotes from people like Paul Valery, who, you know, Thomas Mann, who saw that like people in Germany were like, oh, hey, this Hitler fellow, he's, you know, he's different. He's going to uh, drain the swamp and he's going to, you know, throw out all these corrupt politicians. And he's a businessman, so he really knows how government should work.
0: It sounds really familiar.
2: Like literally, you know, and you're reading this from like 1938, 1937. And you're, you're like, you know, it looks like it's a quote from this year. Mm-hmm. And so, but also like they said, the other thing is, is you cannot depend on the liberals and the moderates to protect you. It's because most of them will underestimate the risks that they are facing.
0: Yeah. I've, you know, I've, I've heard the, the fascism uh, comparisons a lot. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is, like, it seems like every time a threatening form of government arises, um, whether it's, you know, fascism in the 20th century or, uh, like, you know, monarchies before that or dictatorships or things like that, they always seem to have, like, a new form form that takes everybody by surprise so there might be things that are sort of like very similar to fascism but it's not going to look exactly the same it's going to be a little different right so it's not going to right so it, it, we might and so we won't even know it might be different enough that we might not even realize we're in the midst of it until we need to be saved
2: <laughs> right so the I, I one of the people who is useful in and I talked about um, as being able to transfer knowledge for it, is if you look at Umberto Eco's um, Ur-Fascism, which is a short essay that he did, uh, you can find it on newyorkbooks.com, and he listed out 14 or 18 characteristics of different fascisms. And he, sa- he says at the outset, he says, number one, he says, I was a fascist, <laughs> he says, I was uh, in the, the fascist youth organization because everybody was. He says, you know, we were, you know, Italian kids. He was like, I was five or six. And like, this was the thing. And he says, you know, but you got to see how adults reacted to it. So he says, I sort of had a front row seat. And he says, and here, like, looking back on it, here are the characteristics of it. And, you know, it's things like, denigrating science and the humanities, um, you know, being misogynistic, um, feeling that ordinary life has to be heroic all the time. So like these people who go into stores without masks and they're like, I'm just living without fear.
0: Oh, or the the open carry people who just walk around with their guns all the time being like, I'm ready. I'm ready for just one bad guy
2: right and what we're you know what we're coming to learn as we're going through this the, the, the crisis of, of covid in particular is like a everybody is somewhat debilitated in like the decision-making process or in the resources that they have so even the people who are you know i know people who are enlightened people who are highly educated who have many mental resources to deploy even those people no matter how good you or I or any of them are, like there's a point at which you sort of deplete your excess capacity to deal with crap.
0: Yeah, and this year has been just sort of piling crap on top of crap. I mean, you listed, um, you said you you said that you said there were about ten sort of catastrophes that were hitting us this year. Yeah, uh, and I feel like I can only count like three real big ones that I've encountered although so the first one being the pandemic I think everybody on the planet has had to deal with that Uh, the political unrest that we have has been pretty bad um, which I guess is probably multiple catastrophes because you've got stuff like uh, you know systemic racism um, also uh, the misinformation campaigns that have been going on around it have been pretty uh, weird especially living in Portland and having like a misinformation campaign about Portland happened to such an extent that like, even my, uh, you know, liberal or left-leaning friends in other parts of the country contacted me and were like, are you guys okay? Are you guys like, you know, is the fighting in the streets everywhere? And I was like, there's, there's not fighting in the streets. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, so
2: let's just, let's just straighten that out. First of all, like, mm -hmm. how much disruption has there been in Portland?
0: Uh, I have Has it been ha-
2: noticeable at all?
0: No, it hasn't been noticeable. You know, they, um, <clears throat> there have been... So there's been all of the clashes, I think, between law enforcement and protesters have been kind of within a very small area of downtown. Um, mm-hmm. And I have not encountered it. I haven't seen it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um there have been peaceful protests that have kind of stretched stretched out to other parts of town, but those have mostly been marches. And uh, I know one happened fairly close to me, but I didn't see it. I haven't. I have not had any disruption from the protests. Uh, so I haven't even heard them.
2: So you mean Oregon is not in a state of insurrection?
0: It is nowhere near a state of insurrection. We're mostly currently all in a state of staying inside because the air sucks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, how how are the how extensive are the forest fires near you?
0: The forest fires are shockingly extensive. I um you know the so the fire season first of all, we have a fire season. This is not I've lived in Oregon my entire life and we didn't start having a fire season until like the early 2000s. Um mm-hmm. and when I moved up to Portland, there was no fire season in this part of the state. I lived in southern Oregon before. And it's been getting worse here. 2018 um was uh was an extent of smoke and fire that i was so unprepared for like it felt like an end of the world sort of level of smoke and fire uh, and this year is worse like i've never seen anything like this it's it's terrifying i don't think
2: there's been anything like this one
0: yeah i don't think so either i think um we did you know historically oregon had a pretty catastrophic um fire I think it was like in 1906 or something like that but mm-hmm. nobody is alive but
2: not in like living memory
0: yeah in living memory there's never been anything like this and it's it's big it i was just reading an article talking about um highway closures um i guess people who, who don't live in oregon probably aren't familiar with our geography but we're basically you know on the on the west side, it's, um, it's basically like temperate rainforest, sort of like dense woods that are all on fire right now. And then we've got the Cascades, and on, on the east side of the state, it's sort of high desert. Uh, but crossing the Cascades is a problem. They're a serious mountain range, and, um, and most of those crossing points are closed now. Like the fires have taken out tons and tons of highways. The infrastructure in Oregon is going to take like a decade to recover. From just wow. this year of fires. Uh, and we're not done burning. You know, it's going to happen again next year. It it kind of sucks. <laughs> I, I really like it here.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's happening not only in Oregon, but also Washington and California right
0: now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. Yeah it's uh in california it's been happening um even worse in california over the last few years and uh as an oregonian who's experiencing wildfires or the you know the effects of wildfires it was impossible for me to comprehend how bad california was so <laughs> it's if i guess what i'm trying to say is if you're watching the news out there the the civil uh unrest and insurrection in Portland has been greatly exaggerated, but I feel like the wildfire stuff has probably been under-exaggerated. I don't know what the opposite of exaggerate is, but it hasn't been emphasized enough. It's 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 pretty bad.
2: Yep. Um, and so one of the things that I've been trying to get across to people is, and particularly on Twitter this morning, you saw something that I had posted where Because there are these interlocking crises and problems and everything, like our mental resources are depleted. So that reserve of of ability to just handle them is under an enormous cognitive load. But Mm -hmm. also because of these real world crises or external crises, like the resources we have in place to be resilient against them, that's also been depleted. So, like, on the very small scale, like the fact that we have an extremely lean supply chain produced that shortage of toilet paper back in March, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like that's a funny little hiccup. But, you know, if there are other hiccups in the supply chain, because, you know, of the, of the 10, maybe four of them have like a serious immediate crisis going on right now you know some of the other some of the other ones like just the general environmental global warming thing that's like the gigantic crisis that's going to take ages to fix
0: if we like, can ever there's fix not it. much you can do
2: about it right. in the like as the, as the monolithic piece of it but like you know that makes all of the other crises worse and you have these small crises that are all happening at the same time and so if you know anything about systems theory when you have multiple failures in these interconnected systems right you have spillover effects blowback you have cascading failures so like you know some years ago like one particular transformer blew out and other other ones started to try and take the load and it eventually knocked out the entire eastern power grid Oh yeah. So you ha- right so you have these things where like if the system is already taxed to the point where there is no room for error and you have a lot of things that are throwing off errors right you you end up where like this system collapses like the mail for example you know the mail is already under strain because they've they've screwed with it you know the guy who's postmaster wants to have it privatized, so he wants it to look like it's in a complete state of collapse. Mm-hmm. So he's done everything he can to slow down the mail. But unfortunately, like that has real-world consequences. So the mail slows down by a week, and people don't get their prescription medicine on time. Right. They don't get their prescription medicine on time, right? then we need to find a way to get prescription medicines to people for a longer period of time, so they get it before they run out, you know, we have to work all of that into the system, we have to, right, it interferes with the vote by mail absentee ballot system, right? It, everything is interconnected. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the big issue that we're facing right now, over and above each one of these things being a big issue in and of itself, is that every one of those takes resources that could be used to help deal with the other Crises, and those resources just aren't there. You just you're stuck being buffeted by wave after wave of disaster.
0: Yeah. So one of the things you one of the things you tweeted about this morning was uh, basically that we should all be stocking up on on supplies and things um, because of this sort of like system spillover.
2: Yeah. And so what you're doing is. This is not like you should all go full prepper and go off the grid. Mm-hmm. This is like you should think like your grandparents did in the Great Depression and fill up your pantry, you know, with a couple extra jars of everything.
0: Yeah. Get a, right. get a few extra cans of canned tomatoes and another bag of flour.
2: Right. And make sure everything that, that can be repaired or was going to be repaired is repaired. Mm-hmm. So, like, it doesn't fail at exactly the worst moment.
0: That. Oh, that's a good. That's a good. Right? Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, you know, if these fires keep up, like California is a pretty big producer of um, produce for the United States. Like, we get a we get a lot of veggies and yeah. stuff from California. Uh, that's going to be a problem. And also, Oregon, we produce a ton of weed. <laughs> yeah, um, which I guess prob I don't know that there's a there's a legal export option for that yet but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there won't be yeah but,
2: but you also produce a lot of fruit a lot of um, a lot of other specialty mm-hmm. uh, food products and all of that's going to you know and it's a big import export hub
0: yeah yeah
2: right
0: yeah and with and our when
2: every west coast import export hub is blocked off from the inland right because you know, I guess the major ports and cities are not blowing up yet. This is you know, not like Beirut. Right. It's like, but even so, like, you have to have a working port and a working way to get to the port. Mm-hmm. So like, or from the port. Right. And so, like, is that going to be a problem? Is there going to be a disruption in the supply chain there? Like, yeah, all it's- of these things, right, all of these things are hitting like one after another. And the places where resilience has been put into the system before, you know, it's all being taken out. uh, Some of it by consultants like me, but who were not thinking about, you know, the disasters that could happen if you cut down your inventory of toilet paper or wheat or apples or whatever it is.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So you know, one of the things that you need to do is sort of upgrade your own close in network. Right. So like, if you think about like, when we had the shutdown, there were sort of three groups of people, like, there's the person who has it together so well, that they've got their act totally together, and they can go and help other people. Mm -hmm. Those are great people to have around, you know, the guy who shows up, as I usually say, with the the chainsaw, when a tree has fallen across. Your driveway—he's out there before you are, right? Everybody has that neighbor, yeah. Who's like, who's like on the spot, who like knows just what to do in that particular crisis, or you know, or the person who, when you're choking, they know the Heimlich maneuver,
1: right? mm-hmm.
2: pop the food out of your throat. Like, there's always those people are around, and if you can be, that's a good person to be. But at least you want to be capable of like taking care of yourself feeling safe and secure in your own home to the extent that you can. And so like the first step of that is like having these pieces of resilience. And then if you're really good at that and you have that down, then you can find places where you can be the, the good neighbor and help other people who maybe didn't anticipate that a tree would fall across their driveway. And so you happen to have an extra chainsaw and right, can be over there or you have a sewing machine. Right, like that was one of the things that surprised me. Was like I had not anticipated needing to have a sewing machine to stitch together surgical masks. It's mm-hmm. like a major project. I'm like, oh well, you know that makes sense. And so like I had to go to my network of you know family and friends and be like, okay, who is making these things, you know, this week, and who can mail me one. Right. Right. And so like, but like. That, and that's the other piece of it is like having your local networks in place going and talking to your neighbors seeing if they need anything seeing what they can do to help other people right and just gradually building out just small scale networks of folks who can help each other cuz you know hope help from far away may not be as easy to come by
0: right yeah that's that's very true yeah in in portland you, you know uh we've had this sort of ongoing fear of, you know, the big earthquake. Like there's this concept that yeah. there's going to be a big earthquake that hits the West Coast and it's probably going to destroy Portland and all of our infrastructure will be down. You won't be able to cross the rivers and everything will suck. So there are uh, there are already a good number of like disaster preparation groups and, um, and I don't know, urban preppers in Portland, um, which is mm-hmm. nice. And I guess for all of my Portland listeners out there, there's probably one in your neighborhood, so go find them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I was just thinking about that, like the 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 need to rely on your close-in network, um, including sort of like neighbors or, or yeah, like neighbors and stuff, you, you, like your, your immediate community. Uh, that's something in, in the United States that has been kind of uh, – not emphasized very well, like, you know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm not going to sound intelligent about this because I can't remember exactly what I read, but people have talked about the fact that like community has suffered in the United States. Uh, and maybe it's because we've had so much great supply chain stuff that we don't, we haven't needed to rely on our neighbors so much, but that's probably going to change. It,
2: it might, you know, and the thing is is you don't really know how long disruptions are going to be there by be there for, or you know, which ones are going to actually be an inconvenience and which ones are going to be a serious problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing when you have to buy paper towels a single roll at a time, right? It's another if like you desperately need a hammer and <laughs> there are no hammers <laughs> to be found for six months. Right. Or right, or your blood pressure medicine doesn't arrive, right, or su- whatever it is that happens when there when there when there's a crisis. We don't know what the what the thing is going to be, and it's going to be something weird in all likelihood because we're dealing with these multiple overlapping things. Um, and so uh, I've been talking online with uh, Vinay Gupta, who designed the hexayurt oh I
0: saw one of those and I was camping last week
2: yeah so they're they're basically it's it's a very simple to put together semi-permanent housing that you can do for refugees or for people who have become uh, unhoused for one reason or another and you can make it out of plywood and screws you know Mm -hmm. Um, or out of anything else that you may happen to have lying around and it's a very efficient way to, to do things. And then, you know, he and uh, Lucas Gonzalez also came up with a threat matrix of like the six things that could kill you. So it's like um, too hot, too cold, no food, no water. Um, and then uh, security and I forget the sixth one, like healthcare. -hmm. Disease, so those are the six things that can kill you. It's like violence, health, uh, water, food, and shelter. You know, and then too hot, too cold. Right. And so they have a bullseye diagram that has these six factors on it, and then you position right where your supply chain to prevent each of these is coming from. And
0: so it's kind of a worksheet almost, huh?
2: Yeah, so it's a worksheet for you to kind of do a threat assessment. And um, so one of the projects is is trying to, using what are basically lean production methods, moving those nodes of supply closer to you and to those around you. So that they're, in other words, looking at it from the other other end is like a lot of those are centralized and you want them to be distributed and localized Mm -hmm. so that it's a full network. And so if there's a breakdown in one node on the network, it will be less disruptive to the network as a whole.
0: And then of course you should store your network in a memory palace.
2: That's right. And once you've stored it in a memory palace, it's completely safe uh, until you uh, (laughs) forget about it.
0: Until you get some head injury or something.
2: Right, or until the Inquisition catches you and burns you at the stake.
0: Well, one of the good things about the Inquisition catching you is when they keep you in the dungeon. At least they're the ones worrying about your supply chain, so you don't have to anymore. That's right. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, this uh, this has been a really fascinating conversation. We really went from, um, you know, the the uh, geocentric crisis of the seventeenth century. 16th century all the way up to uh, modern crises <laughs> yeah um, yeah so alright let's talk about like where can people find you on the internet right now
2: okay so on twitter I'm at infinite underscore me and then uh, you can also find me at bottlerocketscience.net, dot net which is my blog uh, I haven't been terribly active there this year, but um, you know, I promise I'll write some more. Um, and then I'm also on Quora quite a lot because that's a uh, uh, kind of a fun place to get writing prompts. Mm-hmm. It's a question and answer site, and so I'm I write a lot of. Um, lately, I've been writing a lot of uh, like student advisory things, like how how do I change my major, or you know people arguing with their parents over what career they should take or different things like that. So
0: hmm. <laughs> I look forward to seeing your advice on that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, all right. And I'll, do you have like a, I guess in, in, on Quora, you must have a profile page there. So people You can...
2: just, yeah. If you just look at my name, you look up my name, I should be on there.
0: Okay, cool. I will have links to all of that stuff in the show notes. And Scott, thank you again for being, um, uh, recurring guest on my on my podcast. Oh
2: sure, always a pleasure. It's wonderful to talk to you. Next and, time, uh, we'll next have to do it again soon.
0: Yeah, and next time we probably won't talk about Bruno at all. Oh my gosh! I don't know. I don't That's know what right. we're going to talk about.
2: <laughs> well, we'll figure something out.
0: All right. Well, thank you again. All right. Take care now. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.